Deuteronomy 32. If you remember, last week we looked at the very end of Moses' life. And God told him near the very end to basically take down these words, turn them into a song, teach it to the Israelites, so that after you're gone, when the children of Israel basically undo everything that you've worked for to create community and a people who uh, worship God, as soon as they get into the land of Canaan, they're going to undo everything. Everything you work for Moses is going to fall apart. Right? And in that way, he is foreshadowing the even greater deliverer, the greater Moses, if you will, who at the end of his life, it seemed like everything had fallen apart, Jesus himself. But God tells him, because that's going to happen, you need to write down these words, turn it into a song, and teach it to Israel. So that one day, down the road, it'll be a witness for me against the Israelites. And I told you that tonight, we're going to look at the words to the song, Moses' farewell song, if you will. Uh, what, are the, what, what is this song all about? What are the messages here, the important lessons that God wants to instill into his people? Because you can start out saying, well, you know, why a song anyway? Why a song? What's special about a song? And I think there, there really are a couple reasons why God would have Moses write down these words and teach them as a song. The first is, songs are more memorable. Songs are more memorable. This is a culture in which if you want people to really understand things, you're going to say it in a memorable form. And a song is one of the best ways there is. Songs impress themselves upon people, and they remember them. Now, in our culture, see, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. In our culture, we don't really sing together much at all anymore. It's one of the interesting things about um, life in our postmodern world that people tend to experience music in an individualistic way, so many, so many ways. That's why we haven't let our kids have iPods yet, because we tell them we want music, first of all, to be a corporate community experience. Um, we, we're trying to build that into them. I'm not saying they'll never have an iPod. We actually bought Cooper an iPod, and he hadn't had it but a week, and he went swimming with it, and it was still in his swim trunks, and <laughs> it didn't work anymore. Um, and he hasn't really wanted one since. But anyway, that's an aside. Uh, in this culture, if you look at the use of music um, in the Bible, you find that it's used in all kinds of settings, which is much like most every culture in the history of the world. We're kind of out of sorts with the rest of the world and the rest of history in the way we use music, in the way it's not so much part of our daily life um, that we're involved in music making. But be that as may, in this culture, music is very important. So he sets down these words as a song. The other thing about music that I think is important for us to understand is that music intensifies whatever experience you're having. Uh, St. Augustine realized this a long time ago, and so he's, he's famous for this saying, whether he actually said it this way or not, nobody knows, but he's a tr this is attributed to him. Uh, Augustine is supposed to have said that he who sings prays twice. He who sings prays twice, that there's an intensification of this effect, whether it's a lament, a prayer of lament, whether it's a prayer of praise, to sing it intensifies the emotional experience and the connection. But for whatever reason, Moses puts these words down as a song. And the song is actually in a familiar form. Now, this is something that Bible scholars have realized more recently, 
But from comparing the form of this song with other documents that we have from the same area, from the same era, people understand that this is a covenant lawsuit document. In other words, nations, usually a sovereign nation that had captured or was more powerful than a smaller vassal nation, would um, have these covenant relationships and they would draw up these documents, these covenant documents, and we have some of these. And the sovereign uh, nation... The, the more powerful nation would basically tell the vassal nation, here's the way you need to live. They didn't negotiate. The sovereign nation said, this is how you must uh, operate, and here are the parameters and whatnot. And then uh, we have some examples as well of documents that would be written, basically lawsuit documents, if the, the vassal nation decided to make an alliance or a treaty with another nation instead of the nation that they were in covenant with, then that sovereign nation would pronounce or would sue them, basically, for breach of the covenant. And this song fits that form. It fits that form of covenant lawsuit document, except for the end. And when we get to the end, I'll show you why this covenant lawsuit ends differently than other covenant lawsuit documents. So it's a song. It's a song in a familiar form. It comes to Israel's, uh, Israel as a covenant lawsuit document. And, and one other thing I want to mention before we actually dive into it um, is this whole thing, sometimes maybe you're taught in your Old Testament classes about a thing called the Deuteronomistic history. I know that's a mouthful, but it's this idea. A lot of people, a lot of Bible scholars, I don't take this view, but a lot of Bible scholars have this idea that Deuteronomy really is a very late creation in the history of Israel, that it really dates to a much later period where you have this sort of battle between the priests and the prophets. And where, um, where the Bible talks about um, Hezekiah rediscovering the law, they would say, well, no, really what happened is he basically, you know, some people made it up and called it Deuteronomy and attributed it to Moses. And the reason they say that is because if you look at the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and a lot of the prophets, you see a lot of parallels with language in Deuteronomy that's also in these prophets. And so people try to argue that, these prophet, uh, that the prophets really were behind Deuteronomy. And they put these words in the mouth of Moses to bolster their case. Now, I don't think that's true. I don't think there's any good reason to think that. The only documents that we have to try and settle this question are the Old Testament documents themselves. And what I think, in actuality, there is a very strong relationship between Deuteronomy and the prophets. And when we read this song, see, I want to say this before we read it, I want you to notice it. You're going to, you're going to see references here. You're going to see verses, and you're like, wait, that sounds like something I've heard here or there. Yes, because what Moses lays down in Deuteronomy, and particularly in this last song, is really the paradigm, the model, the blueprint that the later prophets are going to use to look back and try to understand the times they're living in. They're going to look at this because in this song, God is saying, this is what my people are going to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is what's going to happen. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah and others are looking at Israel. They're looking at Deuteronomy 32 and they're saying, ah, I think this is it. I think this is happening just as God said it would. So there's a strong relationship it's this relationship that the prophets were steeped in Deuteronomy as God's word. It guided and determined their understanding of what was going on. 
And so as we read this, what I want you to understand, and I really think this way whenever I get up to preach, that what I'm offering you here, and what, when we open the Word of God together, this is about giving you theological orientation to reality and to life. This is the perspective, this is God's perspective on the way things are. So let's turn our attention to God's Word. Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 1. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong Upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, Yahweh? O foolish and unwise people, is he not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, or I think should be better translated the sons of God, in other words, angels. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land, he, meaning God, found him, meaning Israel. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded over him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Jeshurun is a sort of a pet name that God has for Israel. Jeshurun grew fat. And kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. 
I will devour the earth and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. Young men and young women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. They are a nation without sense, and there's no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand or two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve? In other words, kept it hidden and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, meaning the enemies of God's people. Their, enemy, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge or vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in? The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare... As surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasp it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Moses came with Joshua, son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. I know that is a sobering and long passage. Let's pray and then unpack it a little bit. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Even though there are things in this portion that challenge and then really concern us and upset us that really challenge our idea of who you are and what you're like. We pray that you would teach us what this is about and teach us about yourself. What, are, what is so important about these words? That they are vital 
to our life. We pray you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm basically just kind of go through this this thing kind of verse by verse, though there are places where I'll kind of summarize some things, because I think there's just a great development of the song itself. And, And I think there really are five verses to this song. You could say the first verse is praise God for who he is and what he's done. The second verse is lament the adultery of God's people. The third verse is about uh, mourning the righteous judgment of the Lord. The fourth verse is interesting. We're called to ponder the deliberation of the Lord. And then in the fifth verse, we're told to take hope in the promise of the Lord. So let's see how this develops. And um, hang on, because I'm not going to go too slow. All right. Um, First thing to notice here is where it starts. Verses 1 and 2. Our God speaks, and his word gives life. I love this in verse 2. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. These are powerful images for people who live in a wilderness desert culture. Rain is life. Water is life. God's words are life. Sometimes they, they come almost without you noticing them, like the dew. Sometimes they break forth. The heavens are rent, and, and it just comes pouring down. There are times when we experience God's word in an obviously powerful way. There are other times when we don't seem to be getting a lot out of it. And yet, regardless of what you're experiencing, these words are life. And the first thing that God says is, you need to take heed and listen The other thing that's so amazing about our God, what we find in these verses, the way it begins, is that Christianity, like Judaism, does not teach that we have to go discover God. God, hallelujah, is a God who reveals himself. The first thing he says is, listen, I'm going to tell you what is important and what matters, right? Then he goes into proclaiming the name of God, verse 3. So it starts out with, listen, listen. And then it moves into proclaim the name of God. Praise God for who he is and what he's done. And and we haven't talked about this, so I'll I'll just say this briefly. But there's something really powerful and, and vital and basic to our identity as human beings in the act of praising. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, tries to get at this. What is it about praising, whether it's praising a baseball team or some band that you just discovered, or some restaurant that you love, or a person? What is it about praising that seems so basic to what it means to be human? And here's the way he writes about it. I think this is really, is really powerful. He basically says that praise completes our joy. That until we praise something, we don't get the full consummation of the joy that it can bring us. Here's the way he says it. He says, The world rings with praise. Praise of weather, wine, mountains, rare stamps, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not quite noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be Inner health made audible. It's worth pondering. Just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge us 
to join them in praising it, right? Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Praise is what we were made for. You can't get it out of you. But God says, I am the one who deserves to be praised. And then this section, this whole beginning section, is filled with beautiful, powerful metaphors. Now remember, this song is a song that is going to be disregarded by this immediate generation. The hope is that down the road, God's people will remember this song because it's been taught to the children And when they have broken God's covenant and when they have suffered grievously because he's turned his face from them and he sent calamities upon them to wake them up, when they've been through all of that, the hope is that this song will remind them of who God is and what he's done. So as as you remember that, think about these images. These are the things that God's people need to remember after they've grievously sinned. These are the things God's people need to remember to basically sort of hide in their heart uh, so that they would be kept from grievously sinning. So even though the people that these were first spoken to didn't pay any attention to these words, these are the words, these are the things that we need to know about who God is. What does it say about him? It says in verse 4 that he's a rock who does no wrong. He can be counted on. He's the one constant in a world of variables. He's the rock. He's a loving father. The verses 5 through 9 bring this out. They talk about how basically, you know, the, the, the people have acted corruptly. To their shame, they are no longer his children. I think what it means is they're no longer recognizable as his children because down in verse 19, he still calls them his children. I think that what he's saying here in verse 5 is they don't even, they don't even look like my children. They're, they're a warped and crooked generation. They don't even look like my children. And then the, the, the song says, is this the way you repay the Lord, your father, your creator who made and formed you? So he keeps appealing to this image that God is your father. He's, he's the one who has um, birthed you. He's the one who demonstrates special care for you. There's this interesting phrase um, that, that I probably shouldn't have tried to explain as I was reading it in verse 8. But it talks here about God setting up boundaries for all the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. A lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence that it should probably be better be translated the sons of God, which is a word that means angels. In other words, this idea that the, the peoples are allotted to different places and there's maybe an angel attendant to each of those. It's hard to know because the Bible doesn't tell us much about angels. Okay, But what's clear is that regardless of what he's saying about the nations, Israel is in a special case. Israel has God himself watching over them. All the other nations have an angel attendant, but God is watching over Israel. They're the apple of his eye. Now, actually in the Hebrew, it literally says the little man of his eye. 
The little man refers to the pupil, okay? This little, little man, the pupil. It's the vulnerable part of your eye. And so the imagery is this. Just as, just as your eye is quick to protect the little man of the eye, so God will protect you. I mean, how fast can you blink if I, you know, punch at you? Quick, right? You see, that's the imagery here. The little man of the eye, the apple of the eye. Beautiful imagery that we need to understand. God is our father. God is a rock. He's a protective father. He's an eagle who guards its young, verse 11. But notice this. The eagle is the one who stirs up the nest to basically kick the baby eagles out of the nest when they don't want to leave. And yet, the eagle flies underneath the babies so that if they can't fly yet, he's underneath and supports them on his wings, on his pinions. That's the imagery. And this is, you know, God saying, I am your father. I do care for you. I do protect you. But at times, I'm going to stir up the nest because I want you to grow up. You may not like it, but understand that I am always there. I'll never leave you or forsake you. God alone is like this. He demonstrated this the whole time they wandered in the desert. Look what he says here in verse 12. The Lord alone fed him. The him there is Israel the nation of Israel. The Lord alone fed Israel. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields and on and on and on and on. So remember who your God is and what he's done. Remember the stories. Remember the faithfulness. Remember who he is and what he's done. Now, if I draw a quick application from this, why this matters to us, what we can learn from the song starting this way, it's this. Do we know who God is? And do we know what he's done? Because I think the lesson to learn from this psalm is it's vital that we fill our hearts with the knowledge of who he is and what he's done. If you're content to just have a general, vague sense of who God is and what he's like, it will not support you and fortify you the way you need to be strengthened. It's vital that if you're somebody who's going to try to follow Jesus, that you seek to understand who he is, that you listen to his word. It's not enough to say, well, I have a Bible, and I think it's great, and I'm glad that I have it. (laughs) No. Do you ever read it? And if it confuses you, do you ever seek to figure out what it's saying? Do you ask questions? Do you um, you, you, you spend time in it, trying to, to wrestle with it? Do you try to get it into your heart? Do you ever memorize scripture? All these sorts of things. God has spoken, and he says it's absolutely vital that we would understand who he is. And so I encourage us to that, right? It really is, you know, this knowledge that is to guard us against spiritual adultery, as well as to help us find our way home when after we've committed spiritual adultery, right? Because these words were given knowing that God's people are not going to listen to them but knowing there's going to be a time when this will be the message they need to hear. All right, we've got to press on. Verse 2 of the song. Verse 2 of the song basically says this, Lament the adultery of God's own people. And it starts at verse 15. Jeshurun, it's a pet name for Israel. It's a lover's name, if you will. Grew fat on the Lord's blessings and abandoned his rock, his Savior. This is sort of the, you know, praise God, and yet Israel is not going to remember this. 
they're not going to pay attention to this. See, it's so vital that the Lord's gifts be received in a posture of thankfulness because one of the things that's so easy and the history of Israel demonstrates over and over again is it's so easy to separate the giver of the gifts from the gifts themselves. To when God has given us what we think we need to look to other things for life. God's people must see how bad their adultery really is. And so what God says here is, he doesn't just say here, look, when you got fat, you forgot about me. He actually says it worse than that. It's worse than that. Um, In the end of verse 15, he says that Israel abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his savior. That's stronger than just forgetting. That's active scorning of God. We don't do ourselves any favor when we try to put a happy face on our sin and say, well, really, you know, I didn't mean to do that. Don't give me that. Don't give God that. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows that our hearts are desperately wicked, beyond understanding, right, as Jeremiah tells us. He knows, like it says in Genesis, that the heart of man is only evil all the time, right? All the intentions of man's heart was only evil all the time, right? I don't think we believe that. But the first part of coming to embrace the goodness of the gospel is to understand that things are worse than we think they are. I always know this when I sit down with a student that you're worse than you think you are. But I also know that the gospel is better than you think it is, right? And I don't think you can have one without the other. I think it was Martin Luther that said, hunger makes a good cook. Unless you really understand how desperately wicked and helpless you are, the gospel will never be the power it should be in your life. So God helps his people by exposing their idolatry. (laughs) He exposes their idolatry. He doesn't pull any punches This whole little section here, he basically says, look, this breaks my heart. I'm jealous for your love. Your idols are detestable. They're demonic. Ultimately, you're worshiping demons. It's crazy. You guys are crazy to exchange the worship of me, the one you've known, for these upstart gods who just sort of came out of nowhere. You've never known them. They don't have any track record. They've not done anything for you. Your fathers didn't know them. And you're rejecting me, the father who made you, the mother who gave birth to you. He uses both those images here, father and mother. You're rejecting me for these upstart gods? This doesn't just anger God. What you get in this middle, in the second verse, is it breaks his heart. And until you see that your idolatry breaks God's heart, true heart change is impossible. When you think that it just angers God, you may be satisfied with trying to reform your conduct because you don't want God to be mad at you. But it's not until you see that your adultery, that your idolatry breaks his heart, that true heart change is possible. My favorite quote, C.H. Spurgeon, the great old Baptist preacher, says it so well. He says this, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, 
I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. If you think God is unreasonable and hard, then you will feel justified in hating him and looking for some other lover that will, that will flatter you. Verse 3. Not verse 3 of the passage, but verse 3 of the song, which picks up at verse 19, says this, Mourn the righteous judgment of the Lord. Now, I want you to see in this section, not just all these frightening statements about the judgment that God is promising for those who break his covenant. I want you to see the Lord pouring out his grief because he didn't create his children for this. He didn't create his children for this. He didn't make the world for this. And for God to be brought to the point where he threatens this, where he promises this, has got to break his heart in a way that we can't even begin to understand. But note what it starts with in verse 19. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. He still calls them sons and daughters. He still acknowledges them as his children. But it says in the next verse, he hides his face from them. Now this is a concept we don't have much in evangelicalism anymore. The idea that God would hide his face from his children is a biblical theme. The Puritans actually were very good at this. And no, it wasn't because they were morbidly introspective killjoys. It was because they were strong students of the Bible. And they said, when you come to the Bible, you find not a mechanical God, but you find a God who loves us, whose heart breaks when we turn away from him. And sometimes to wake us up, he has to use really strong medicine, like turning his face, hiding his face from us. And that's the picture here. Very strong medicine. God prophesies here that he's going to use another nation that he describes as not a people to wake up his own people. See, this is what Jeremiah and Isaiah pick up on and say, this is what's coming. Repent. And it is what came. Assyria. God used Assyria to judge his own people. And his people didn't know what to make of it. The whole book of Habakkuk is about this. Lord, how could you, the righteous one, use an unrighteous nation, the Assyrians, one of the most cruel people to have ever lived on the face of the earth, how could you use them as your instruments? But God does. And he told them he was going to do this back in Deuteronomy 32. But he tells them something else. And this is when you begin to see a little hint of hope. Verse 4 of the song starts at verse 26. Here we see into the very mind of God. And you see God deliberating within himself. And you see that the word of judgment, 19 through 25, verses 19 through 25, is not the last word word. This is good news. This is amazing what you have here. Look at verse 
26, God is torn. And he tells us that he's torn. He said, I, he says, I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. He's talking about his own children. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary, he means the people he's using to judge his own people, lest they misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. So the Lord deliberates within himself. My people deserve to be blotted out of memory. My people deserve to be scattered and to be destroyed and to be cut down. But if I use this nation, Assyria, to do that, Assyria won't understand. And they will think that they should get the credit. So he ponders, he deliberates within himself. And he laments as well that his people won't have the sense to understand what's happening. Look at verse 29. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be, how could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? What he's saying is, when all of this stuff happens to my children, it should wake them up and they should say, wait a second. We've got an army of 10,000 and we're afraid of two? There's going to come a day, God is saying, where that kind of ridiculous scenario is going to play itself out. And when it does, my people should have the sense to realize that the only way that could ever happen is if I had abandoned them and turned my face away from them. But I don't think they're going to get it. I don't think they're going to get it. Now, this is a very, you know, interesting way for God to talk and reveal himself. Right? It, it challenges a lot of your ideas of God's sovereignty. It seems much more like he's interacting and deliberating. And I thought God knew exactly what he was going to do. And yeah, all that's in there. I don't know how to make sense of it all together. I only know what God's word says. And here it shows him deliberating within himself. There are places in Jeremiah that do the exact same kind of thing. God laments that his people refuse to ponder what's happening to them. And you see, Isaiah actually is going to pick up on this very thing in chapter 30. He's going to say, look, you'll know that you've sold yourself to idols when a thousand flee at the sight of one. That exact same image here from Deuteronomy 32. Isaiah is going to say, look, you've made an alliance with Egypt. And whenever you, put, you worship and put your trust in things that are not God, it will bring irrational fear into your life. If you have irrational fears that are way out of proportion to what they should be, way out of proportion to reality, it's because there's an idol at work in your life. But God's people are not going to see that. Right? Now, this does not mean that you can always figure out what God is trying to tell you when difficulties come into your life. But I do think you should be open to the possibility that God might be trying to teach you something or wake you up. Can I say that without you getting morbidly introspective and trying to figure out exactly what God's teaching you? There are times when God sends trials and he's never going to let you know what it's for. And there are biblical examples of that very thing. But there are also biblical examples where God is sending trials to wake you up. You have to at least consider that as a possibility.
But we also see a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 34. God has a secret plan that he has not yet revealed. He has something up his sleeve, as it were. In due time, he will bring judgment on the peoples that he used to wake up his own people. God still has more up his sleeve. And that gets us to the final verse. And here we're told to take hope in the promise of the Lord. Verse 36. Now this is the ending we would never have expected. Because in all of these covenant lawsuit documents that we have, they end with the destruction. They don't end with rejoice. No lawsuit document ends with rejoice. But this one does. This one ends with a call to rejoice. Why? Why? It's the most important question that we could ask tonight. The answer is because the gospel, the gospel changes all of our ending, all of our endings into happy endings. Now that doesn't mean that you won't ever struggle, you won't ever have sadness, but it means that ultimately the gospel changes the end of your story. Your, sto- your story no longer has to end in death and destruction. You can flee the coming wrath by putting your hope in Jesus and your story can have a happy ending. See, when things look hopeless, God will come to the rescue of his servants. That's what it says here. Verse 36, the Lord will judge, or I think better translated, vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. When things look hopeless, God will come to the rescue. This is everywhere the message of the Bible. Paul says it this way. When the time had fully come, he says in Galatians 4, at just the right time when we were powerless, Romans 5, 6, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. The death that is described as the rescue at the beginning of Galatians. And how does he come to our rescue? Look at this real briefly as we draw this to a close. The first step, the first step in being rescued is to see that we have no other hope. And he shows us that by his grace. He comes, see, in verse 37 and says, Now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. This is the language of scorn. This is the language of there's nobody left, guys. You're at the end of your rope. You're powerless, powerless. Give up. Come to your senses. The first step is to see that we have no other hope. And God in his grace will bring us to that point. The second step in the way God comes to our rescue is to reveal that he himself is like no other. See, if all he does is tell you that you have no hope, (laughs) I mean, that doesn't help you very much at all. At least you may not be under an illusion as you go to your death. But no, he says... I am like no other. You have no hope, but I am like no other. He says that in verse 39. See now that I myself am he. I am. I am that I am. Do you remember that? There is no God besides me. I put to death and bring life. I have sovereign power over everything, but I also have compassion on my servants. And I come to their rescue when they're hopeless and powerless. The third step is through the atonement that he'll make. Look at verse 33, 43, I mean. Verse 43, he says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. 
See, there's all this judgment passage stuff in here. What the Bible teaches us is that Jesus in his death on the cross is the one who bears the judgment of God that he promises for his enemies. In verse 41 and 42, he promises that his enemies are going to bear his sword, that he's going to take vengeance on his adversaries. And yet he turns around in verse 43 and tells these nations, these very adversaries, that they should rejoice. How does that make any sense? In verse 41 and 42, he says, you're going to be struck dead because you're my enemy. And then in verse 43, he says, rejoice. Only because Jesus will take their place as the enemies of God and bear the cup of God's wrath. He will drink the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. See, in Isaiah 51, 17, God promises that he will make his enemies drink the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. And then in verse 21, just four verses later, God says that the servant himself will drink it. Jesus is the one who drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. The final step, the way rescue comes, is to rejoice in the atonement that the Lord makes. And that goes beyond saying, yeah, Kevin, I agree with that. I've heard Jesus came to die on a cross so that people could be saved. I think that's cool. That's good. It's nice. That's not what it means to rejoice. Rejoice goes beyond saying you agree with it. Rejoice goes beyond saying that I can explain it. I can spit out the answers on my Christian doctrine test. Rejoicing in it goes beyond saying, I think it's a really beautiful picture of self-sacrifice. It's very inspiring to me as I try to love people. No, rejoicing means you glory in it. You glory in it. You praise it. You rejoice in it means you boldly put all of your eggs in that one basket with no backup plan. That's what it means to rejoice. And that's the call of the gospel. God has made atonement in Jesus. Will you rejoice in it? Whether it's the first time that you need to do that or whether it's the unteenth millionth time that you need to come back again and rejoice in the atonement, in the reality, the rescue that Jesus has made. Let's pray together.